so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast, where our goal is to help you think biblically about today's cultural issues. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and on today's episode, we're going to take a break from our Gender and Sexuality series in order to talk about the historic attack on Israel and our response as Christians. On October 7th, we woke up to the news that Hamas, a Palestinian terrorist group, launched a surprise attack on Israel killing 1,400 people in what has been referred to as Israel's 9-11. In the days following, we've seen the horrendous images, heard the horrifying stories, and learned more about the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. To help us understand these events and how we can think clearly about them is Paul D. Miller. Dr. Miller is a scholar, author, professor, and public servant. He's a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He serves as co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration in the MSFS program. He's also a senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Dr. Miller previously served in the U.S. Army, including a tour in Afghanistan, as an analyst with the CIA, and as a director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. We'll also talk with ERLC President Brent Leatherwood about the evangelical statement in support of Israel and how Southern Baptists should continue to respond to this ongoing conflict in the Middle East. All right, Paul, thank you so much for for being with us. And uh, let's just start off with just kind of a a foundational question in light of these horrendous events that took place on October 7th and are continuing to take place given that there are hostages. Can you just define for our audience the actors in this? I, I don't think a lot of Southern Baptists or evangelicals know much about Hamas, for example. Just give us a sense of who the players are in this so that we kind of fully understand who all is engaged. Yeah, so that's a great question. Thanks for having me on the show to talk. Even defining actors is itself a complicated question that involves some judgment calls. On the one hand, you of course have the state of Israel established and founded in 1947, recognized by almost all countries in the world as a legitimate sovereign state, waging a war of self-defense against a terrorist group called Hamas. And it's really important to distinguish Hamas from two other actors. Hamas is a terrorist group that has been uh, militarily occupying a small strip of land called the Gaza Strip for the last almost 20 years because it fought a war against the Palestinian National Authority, the PNA, which is another actor to keep in mind. 
The Palestinian Authority was established in the 1995 Oslo Accords, and the international community, 130-some countries, recognized it as the state of Palestine, as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. And the Palestinian Authority governs the West Bank, which so far has not been involved in this war. So you have Hamas, in charge of Gaza, Palestinian Authority, in charge of the West Bank, two separate actors and two separate entities. Palestinian Authority is pretty legitimate, a little corrupt, a little authoritarian, but it's not a terrorist group. Hamas is a terrorist group that, in its charter, says it wants to wipe out Israel. It, it does not acknowledge Israel's legitimacy. The third actor I'd mention here, or, or maybe I guess the fourth, would be the Palestinian people themselves, the civilians kind of caught in the crossfire. Not all Palestinians, not all Gazans, are supporters of Hamas or of the Palestinian Authority, and they are, I fear, bearing the brunt of what this war is unfolding to be. And just a real quick follow-up to that. Can you help our folks understand the state of Israel and you know, the fact that it's a, a coalition government over there? So Israel for the last, ooh, it might be 15 years, uh, has been under the governance of a right-wing coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu. He was in a deep political crisis just before this war broke out. He had proposed changes to Israel's constitution to decrease the role of the Supreme Court. It was very controversial. There were protests in the streets of Israel by Israelis against Netanyahu's government, accusing him of uh, neo-authoritarianism. But with the war having broken out, Netanyahu's successfully been able to form a unity government across the aisle. So it's really strengthened his political position. And honestly, that might have been the intent of Hamas and its Iranian backers. They understood that, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but with Netanyahu in power, it makes it less likely that he's going to be able to reach a rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and the other Arab states. And that directly benefits Iran. So conflict between Israel and Palestine isn't a new thing. It's not something we're just hearing about for the first time. But why is this moment significant? And why should Christians here in the United States care about this political and foreign crisis? What's different about this iteration of the conflict? It is um, the most direct and deepest clash between Israel and the actors that most clearly deny its legitimacy. I think it's fair to say that. Israel's fought several wars against its neighbors in the past. It's had several military operations against Hamas and Hezbollah. But Hamas and Hezbollah are the ones that most deeply and explicitly and clearly vow the eradication of Israel. Israel's neighbors don't recognize Israel, but they're not. Nobody thinks that Egypt is about to wipe out Israel or declare a war against Israel like that. And it's not just a war against Hamas, which has happened before. Israel has vowed to destroy Hamas completely. They're not going to find a modus vivendi. There's no peace that includes Hamas. The terrorist attack that started this war, where Hamas invaded Israel and killed up to 1,200 Israelis, mostly civilians, was, as people say, Israel's 9-11. It was a shocking, horrific mass murder. And Israel, there's no going back after this. So Israel's response is going to be much greater than anything it's done before. Why? Why should Christians care? Because we care about human life. We care about justice. We want to see justice done. We want to see life preserved. And it's a cliche, but it's true on both sides. I, th I think it's we want Israel to be safe and secure and Israelis to enjoy relative security in their homes. We want that for the Palestinian people as well. I personally believe that that does and should include eventually a Palestinian state. That's been clear since 1947. And Hamas is the chief obstacle to that. 
Hamas is the greatest enemy the Palestinian people have ever had. We probably would have a state of Palestine already if it hadn't been for Hamas holding the Damocles sort of violence over the diplomatic process of the past three decades. So we should pray for justice, justice for Israelis, justice for Palestinians. I think it's absolutely fair to say that. That's a uh, that's very good analysis, Paul. Thank you for all that. So you've got an attack here on the state of Israel, but it's being conducted by a, a terrorist organization, not necessarily a, a state actor. So what are the responsibilities that the Israeli government has to defend its sovereignty and defend its citizens in, in this moment? So Israel, like every government in the world, has the right and the, and the duty of self-defense, and it has a lawful and moral authority to respond. And that doesn't really change whether they're responding to a state that attacked them or to a terrorist group. Israel will seek to kill and capture Hamas's leaders and root out the organization, root and branch, just completely destroy Hamas so that there is no such thing as Hamas after this. And I think that that would be an act of justice. I think, again, this is sort of my opinion here, that that should result in the kind of the reunification of the West Bank and Gaza under the authority of the Palestinian National Authority is the legitimate government of the Palestinian people. That would be a, a just outcome. In waging this war, this is a really tricky part. Israel does have to abide by the laws of war, which Hamas plainly does not. It is a war crime to not wear uniforms. Hamas does not. It is a war crime to hide amongst the civilian population. And it's a war crime to use civilian facilities like hospitals and mosques for a military purpose. And Hamas does all that. So they are violating the laws of war left and right. And yet we do have to hold Israel to the highest standards of abiding by the laws of war, being carefully discriminate, and their airstrikes. I'm a little bit troubled at some of the things I've heard Israeli officials say. If you take their rhetoric at face value, some of these officials seem not to want to make a distinction between Hamas and the Palestinian people. And that, that is a little bit troubling. And I, I pray that Israel is discriminate in its use of force. They've also increased their blockade of Gaza. The blockade has been in place for 15, 20 years with Egypt in recognition that Hamas is a terrorist organization. You can't let weapons go there. But Israel has gone a bit further and now cut off electricity and food. And I heard that they turned the water back on this morning. That's a good thing. And again, laws of war say you do have to protect civilians. Cutting off electricity, I kind of get it because electricity is essentially a military resource. I'm glad they turned the water back on. I'd like to see a little bit more effort put out into not just protecting the civilian population, but establishing safe zones, uh, refugee camps, providing food and, and water for civilians who are fleeing the fighting. That, I think, would be in Israel's interest. Israel should sell this as a war to liberate the Palestinian people from Hamas's tyranny. And if they're going to do that, they need to show real concern and care for the civilians. And that would be, I think, strategically wise and morally prudent to do so. How much of your answer just then was informed by your awareness and understanding of just war doctrine and applying it in this situation? And then furthermore, what does just war doctrine say about some of the limits that you can do in response to you know acts like this? So this is a, a just war answer that I've been giving um, based on my recent scholarship, published a book two years ago on just war and, and ordered liberty. Just war theory, I don't call it, it's not really a theory, just word doctrine is a body of theology and jurisprudence and philosophical thought on the restrictions that should be placed on war in light of ethical norms. And it was 
developed most fully by Christian theologians in the late modern, early modern, late medieval period, but has passed into customary international law. It's one of the great inheritances, inheritances of, uh, of Christendom. And my answer just now spoke about discriminating between civilians and legitimate military targets. That's just an obvious, intuitive point that in wartime, you, you try to kill the enemy's soldiers. You don't just use it as an excuse for mass murder. Sadly, in warfare, that's quite often been the case, where once the dogs of war are unleashed, the belligerents to start killing indiscriminately. And so it is appropriate to hold everyone to the highest standard of discrimination. We know Hamas won't do that. Hamas already, by its very charter, won't do that, and they haven't done that. But we, we should ask Israel to do that. So what are some of the common myths associated with just war doctrine? And then are there distinctions to be made when you are fighting against a non-state actor like a terrorist organization like Hamas? Well, I've heard uh, among the criticisms of Israel so far in the past week is that their airstrikes, some people say, have been indiscriminate, have been a war crime for just killing civilians. And I don't think that's quite accurate. That's not the right way to characterize it. Again, I would counsel, you know, that Israel exercise every caution to protect civilian life. But as a legal matter, it is not actually a violation of the law of war if you bomb a hospital or a mosque, if the other side is using it as a military facility. As we know, Hamas is doing. Hamas hides among the civilian population. Hamas uses residences and other civilian buildings for its purposes to, to fire on Israeli soldiers or just as a military headquarters. And so that becomes a military target. The United States and its allies during Iraq and Afghanistan actually kind of bent over backwards to not fire on schools and hospitals and mosques out of our conviction that it was kind of dumb to alienate the civilian population by blowing up their mosques. And so we tried to not do that very often. And so perhaps some observers have come to believe that it's always a violation of the law of war to drop a bomb on a hospital or a mosque. And, that, and that's, again, it's not true. If the other side is using it as a military facility, it is a legitimate military target. Not always prudent to engage it, but it is a legitimate military target if the other side is using it that way. Well, you mentioned earlier in Israel's response the importance of distinguishing between the Palestinians and the cause of Hamas. So how should Christians understand some of the statements made by some Americans supporting the actions of Hamas? And how would you help them distinguish between the actual Palestinian people and Hamas? Just like what you said right there, Hamas is not the Palestinian people. Palestinian people are not Hamas. We've all seen the news of some of the campus protests over the past week, as many you know, kind of college kids are out there saying inflammatory things. And I would just want all Americans and all students to understand it's okay to pray for the safety of the Palestinian civilians as they're caught in the crossfire, to seek justice. And I do, as I said before, I think that means some attention to the plight of the Palestinian people and eventually some form of statehood. And none of that at all excuses Hamas's terrorism. Terrorism is always wrong. No matter the justice of the cause you're fighting for, it doesn't justify terrorism. And Hamas just committed mass murder. They need to be brought to account. Justice must be done. Hamas must be destroyed. I think that is absolutely an act of justice to do that. Just as the United States sought to destroy ISIS and Al-Qaeda, Hamas is indistinguishable. They believe the same things ISIS and Al-Qaeda still believe. And so we should make that careful distinction. War against Hamas, absolutely good, fully justified. Palestinian people should be uh, protected insofar as possible against this war. Paul, I'm curious, do you have any concern that 
the response for this in the coming days from the American side of things could get thrown into the, you know, partisan polarized machine that is our our politics right now. And if you do, how do we prevent this from becoming something that just becomes yet another partisan cudgel uh, that one side uses against the other? Well, everything in American life turns in, you know, becomes consumed by the all-consuming culture war. So it's already happening. It's already happened. Uh, I'm not sure we can prevent it. But in our individual conversations, we can prevent it by making these careful distinctions. You know, the United States has traditionally been on Israel's side on, on these things. I think largely for good reason. Uh, we've, uh, we've tried and failed in the past to mediate peace between the different parties. You're asking, uh, how can we ourselves kind of not fall prey to that? And that is, we tend to want clear good guys and bad guys in everything. So we can root for one side and root against another. Well, there is a clear bad guy here. Hamas is the bad guy, and we want to see them brought to justice. But we also know that the line between good and evil is drawn through every human heart. And so it's not wrong for us to ask Israel to live up to the highest standards of just war theory and uh, discrimination and warfare. That's a good thing. And if, as I said, I'm a little troubled by some of the things Israeli officials have said in recent days regarding the Palestinians, regarding the Gaza Strip. And uh, it's okay to say that. And if if you find yourself self-censoring and thinking, I can't say that, well, that that's the kind of tribalism that is unhelpful. I think we should pray for justice all around, not just for justice for, for our side. That said, while I think it's appropriate to hold Israel to the highest standards as the war unfolds, I think this is probably not the time to relitigate history. Who did what and when in 1947 and 1967? I'm reminded of the debate about NATO expansion before the war in Ukraine. It's a legitimate debate to have. But we don't really need to have that debate while Russia is invading Ukraine, right? That's just sort of inappropriate timing. We don't debate that while Russia is holding a gun to our head. Similarly, this is kind of not the right time to debate the ins and outs of like Israeli settler policy and Israeli policy towards the West Bank and that kind of thing. Those are good debates to have. We should have them, but maybe wait a little bit until after things have settled a bit. So our world has a long history of, sadly, anti-Semitism and violence against Jewish people. And this conflict certainly brings that to the surface. We haven't seen some of the attacks that we had heard maybe would be happening that were being called on by Islamic leaders. And just as it's it's wrong to be anti-Palestinian people, it's wrong to be anti-Semitic. So why is it important for the United States to oppose anti-Semitism and ideologies that seek to eradicate the Jewish nation and Jewish people? Uh, I mean, we should oppose anti-Semitism for the same reason we oppose racism of all forms, uh, any form of bigotry and prejudice. All human beings are made in the image of God and deserve equal dignity and respect under law, equal dignity and respect by our governments and in the sight of God. And anti-Semitism is not merely conscious personal prejudice against Jews and Jewish people. Just as other forms of racism can be more subtle and insidious and structural, I think there's also such a thing as a kind of a structural anti-Semitism. What I mean is, if in the aftermath of the October 7th terrorist attack, your immediate response was, what did Israel do to deserve it? That is a form of anti-Semitism. It's maybe you call it structural anti-Semitism. If you're always looking for a way to blame it on Israel, 
I think that is actually a form of anti-Semitism, certainly at least an anti-Israeliism, if not anti-Semitism. I, I could go on and on and on about this, but it is just and legitimate for Israel to exist and to defend itself. Full stop. There's no ifs, buts, or qualifications to that. It is fully just for Israel to exist and defend itself. And that is, I believe, consistent with the rights of the Palestinian people to exist and have a sovereign state and defend themselves as well. And Hamas is the one spoiler, along with Hezbollah. They deny Israel's legitimacy, and they deny the legitimacy of the Palestinian National Authority. So it's clear that they're the bad guys here. That's all very helpful, Paul. Uh, I think this is... We started off talking before you came on, before we went live, about how there's a lot of uninformed views and perspectives out there. And I think that just this brief conversation will, will hopefully help to mitigate some of that out there. Because I think whenever you talk or write, which we should mention your piece that just appeared uh, at the dispatch, you help to bring a lot of clarity and informative views on, on some really complex topics. Thank you. And thank you for the ministry of the ERLC and how you do this for all the topics. You know, I'm, I'm a specialist. I get to focus on one or two things, but you guys really try to host the conversation on everything. So thank you for that. Brent, you, along with our former colleague, Dan Darling of the Land Center at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, were instrumental in drafting this evangelical statement in support of Israel right after uh, the terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas. Why was this a moment that called for such a statement? And then what do you hope to accomplish through this cross-denominational cooperation? So, you know, Saturday when all of this began, I think probably most folks, speaking especially for me, saw it and it kind of came across the news and you're like, okay, there's things are flaring up again, which has happened over the years. But then Sunday, the full scope of it really started to unfold and, and you realized, okay, this isn't just some sort of isolated event. This is a large, coordinated attack. And, you know, this the analogy isn't original to me, but a lot of folks have said this was, for Israel, akin to their 9-11. Unfortunately, that really doesn't capture the true size of this, because just if you compare it by population percentages, this was much larger than 9-11 was for America. And so Dan and I were just kind of talking through, like, gosh, what what is something that, that could be done in response to this because of just how atrocious this attack was? And we started thinking through something that the ERLC has done in the past when big moments occur. And that was to, to bring together a group of pastors and theologians, academic leaders, to really plant a flag in the ground on behalf of evangelicals. So that's how we we came up with this evangelical statement in support of Israel. And uh, you know, if you if you read through the names, the large thrust of it is certainly Baptist, uh, no doubt about it. But a number of contributors and folks who ended up uh, joining are not Baptist, and we're thankful for that sort of cross denominational support because even though there might be a wide variance in terms of our theological or eschatological beliefs, we all are unified in condemning this attack, 
supporting not just Israel's right to defend itself, but its very right to exist, which is something that, you know, Hamas has contended from the from the outset. And then also to speak up for the vulnerable, innocent civilian lives that were lost in the initial attack, uh, but also the, the vulnerable lives that are caught in the midst of this, whether it's in Israel or in Gaza, whether it is Jewish or Muslim or Christian individuals that, that will be caught up in the midst of a, of a war that is not of their choosing. This was initiated by a terrorist organization, and it was carried out against innocent civilians. And so I thought that, I, I think that's why we wanted to do something in response to it. And then at the same time, also bolster policymakers here at home in America. If you've been paying attention to the news at all in the last several years, there has been this increasing bent towards isolationism from American policymakers. That's just unacceptable. Because when America recedes from the international stage, without a doubt, evil, bad actors will fill that vacuum. And this is a moment for American leadership and American leadership in support of Israel. And so that those ultimately were the objectives here. How does this statement reflect and how is it consistent with what the SBC has said about Israel and the Middle East in the past? Well, you know, broadly, American evangelicals are some of the most supportive people in the world for Israel. That is especially true for Southern Baptists. We are some of the loudest voices and the most adamant supporters of Israel's right to exist. And there's been a number of resolutions over the years expressing that, expressing support for Israel. You know, one of the more recent ones that comes to mind, there was a 2016 uh, resolution against the BDS movement, which was essentially this kind of initiative to economically isolate Israel and diminish it. And, and we spoke loudly and clearly against that. And, uh, and we should. Israel has every right to exist. And at the same time, uh, while the thrust of those resolutions have been supportive uh, of Israel, we have also passed a number of resolutions supporting life and innocent life. And we even had one in 2018 on prayer and support for Arab Christians. Uh, there are a number of Christians uh, who are in this region and who are in the middle of this Israeli buildup uh, responding to Hamas, a number of Jewish individuals, Muslim individuals. And, and so we want to be a voice for those folks as well. And even as we are saying with this statement that Israel has the ability to defend itself and should be supported as it prosecutes that defense. That should not be read as some sort of carte blanche ability to just go and, you know, as, as one social media figure out there said, just turn Gaza into a parking lot. No one that is serious and thoughtful about these sorts of, of moments is, is saying that. And Israel itself, by and large, is not saying that. It wants to prosecute this war 
in a way that is targeted at Hamas. Uh, it, it will be a precision-based war where it is trying to get at those elements of Hamas and its leadership without unnecessarily taking innocent life. And and we should applaud them for that. And, you know, President Biden over the weekend made that clear. I, I did an interview myself with a reporter where, you know, at the end, I, I just kind of underscored that Hamas is the enemy here, not Palestinian civilians. And that's my expectation for how Israel will do this. And, and that's that should be the expectation of all of us here stateside. And I certainly know that that is the heart of Southern Baptists, again, because of those resolutions that we've passed and other statements that have been made by leaders in the SBC. How would you encourage our Southern Baptist pastors and leaders to talk about Israel and Palestine and the people of both of those nations with those that they lead? So I'm sure that this past Sunday, a number of our pastors addressed this from the pulpit. But if you haven't, go ahead and, and do so. And unfortunately, I do think that this this war is is going to be playing out over the course of the next several weeks and, and frankly, months, perhaps even longer. So there will be opportunities to help your congregations and your communities to really understand this. You know, from the statement itself, we wrote this, we recognize the dignity and personhood of all persons living in the Middle East and affirm God's love for them, as well as his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ to all people. And I, I think that's an important starting point because each and every individual over there is made in God's image. And we should start with that theological foundation. And then from there, point out the level of vile evil that initiated this. What started on October 7th, that needs to be condemned. People need to understand the level of atrocity that occurred here. And then I think you can also support Israel's right to exist and its right to defend itself in light of these attacks. And uh, there is, I was speaking with another reporter just a couple days ago about this, and I was trying to help her understand the, the special connection that so many of our churches have with Israel. A number of our church groups were caught over there as this attack began, and we're, we're scrambling to try and find avenues out of there and, and to get safely back home. And, and thankfully, a number of them have have been able to get out and return. There are still a few that are over there that we need to be mindful of and praying for. But there is a special connection, whether it's missionaries over there, church groups visiting, or Send Relief that has been active in coordinating and mobilizing relief efforts even before this, but are especially so now. So we need to be praying for all of the individuals that are affected by this. And then, you know, again, I'll refer back to the statement, the very last line, may God bring peace to the Middle East. We should want that. And we should be praying for that. This, the, the tensions over in the Middle East always seem high, but there had been, thanks to the Abraham Accords that were negotiated by the, the Trump administration, there were these glimmers of hope 
for some stabilized relationships between Israel and other nations in the region. And we should pray for peace for that so that that process can get underway once again and that innocent lives will not be targeted as they were at the outset of this. Those are just some of the ways that I've been thinking through this and praying about it. And I know that so many of our pastors want to helpfully guide their people through this. As the evangelical statement in support of Israel reminds us, in the midst of such horrible events, we should recognize the dignity and personhood of all people living in the Middle East and affirm God's love for them, as well as His offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. We should pray for the protection of Jewish and Palestinian believers who are ministering in the midst of great difficulty and ask God's blessing on their gospel ministry. And we should pray for peace in the Middle East. Join us next time as we continue our series on gender and sexuality by exploring how these ideologies affect us at a personal level. The ERLC Podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's produced by Jill Wagner, Lindsay Nicolay, and Elizabeth Bristow. Technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks for listening, and we're looking forward to being back together with you next time.